Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Italian-American podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian-Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian-Americans on all things Italian from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co-host, Dolores Alfieri. And in today's episode, we chat with Gina Barreca, who is an Italian-American author as well as a humorist. She's the editor of two books that our audience will certainly find interesting, Don't Tell Mama, the Penguin Book of Italian-American Writing, and a sit-down with The Sopranos, watching Italian-American culture on TV's most talked-about series. Dolores, how are you doing today? Hey, Anthony. Doing really well. We have uh, another terrific episode coming up. I mean, they just keep on coming. Yeah, absolutely. Gina was awesome. She was fun, engaging, and ends up being a big part of what we talk about in this episode is the ability of Italian-Americans, scholarly Italian-Americans, to be engaging and to be able to tell stories. Um, And we're going to get into that. Also, I want to mention that in our story segment, I chat with Susan Van Allen, author of 100 Places in Italy, Every Woman Should Go. Uh, Susan talks about a little bit about her love for Italy and how it was born at a dining room table in Newark, New Jersey during Sunday dinners, which is another topic that is something that comes up pretty much on every one of our <laughs> podcast episodes. But even though Gina focuses a lot in feminist theory, Susan wrote this book about where women should go in Italy. It's a very interesting episode that I think talks Talks about families and the back and forth between the responsibilities of men and women in the past leading up to now, which was kind of interesting for us to talk about. And like I said, we just talked about, I think, education and how the Italian-American woman has really progressed. Right. Tremendously, actually, which yeah. has really been encapsulated through our podcast as well, through our different guests. Right. And the best part is that we talk about it in a non-boring way. Exactly. <laughs> And Dolores laughs a lot. <laughs> yep, I sure do. Yeah, well, I guess they're getting funnier. So I don't know. I feel like I'm cracking up most of the time instead of asking really important questions. <laughs> well, and you know, and that goes to the, the interview you're about to hear is that I think people want that. People want to hear fun, engaging stories. I think that's the value that Italian Americans can bring to the table. Um, No pun intended, but we bring it to the table (laughs) and and carries through. So the other thing that we want to mention too real quick is our new neighborhood is going well. That's right. The new neighborhood, A Place for Italian-Americans, is an online community that we've started because so many of our podcast listeners email us all these amazing stories and things that they miss and things that they've lost or things they're trying to hold on to or new traditions they're creating. And Dolores and I were kind of like, this is great, but it's a shame that they're just emailing either Dolores or myself or both of us. And they're not able to share these with some of our other passionate 
listeners. We have so many listeners. Let's try to put them together beyond just an, an open Facebook page more. This is a private group where you can really feel comfortable sharing things and photos about your family. And it's going really well. And if you're interested in joining the group, you can go to italianamericanexperience.com forward slash new neighborhood. We'd love to have you as a part of it. That's right. People have been swapping uh, photographs of their families, talking about where they come from uh, in Italy, realizing that they come from the same place or from, you know, very close to it. They've been swapping ideas for practicing Italian and learning Italian. We're about to start reading some books together and getting some of these great authors that we've spoken to on the show to come into the new neighborhood and, you know, answer questions and do kind of a live talk with our members. So it's a lot of fun. It's really vibrant and definitely uh, check it out. All right. So before we formally introduce our guest, we'd like to offer a brief word from our sponsor, the National Italian American Foundation. I'm John Viola, president of the National Italian American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian American podcast. At NEF, we know there's nothing more important than family. So we invite you to be part of ours. We work to protect our great heritage, promote the Italian language, build stronger ties between Italy and the United States, and serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, our scholarships provide young Italian-Americans help in earning a solid education. To find out more about how your support serves the community, visit us online at www.niaf.org and become part of the NIAF family today. All right, now I'd like to introduce our guest for today's episode, Gina Barreca. Dr. Barreca has appeared on 2020, the Today Show, CNN, the BBC, NPR, and Oprah to discuss gender, power, politics, and humor. Her earlier books include the best-selling, They Used to Call Me Snow White, But I Drifted, Women's Strategic Use of Humor. It's not that I'm bitter or how I learned to stop worrying about visible panty lines (laughs) and conquer the world. <laughs> Sorry, continue. <laughs> and Babes in Boyland, a personal history of co-education in the Ivy League. If you think that her book titles are funny, <laughs> wait till you hear the interview with her. It is hysterical and we're excited to bring it to you. So Dolores, why don't you give our listeners a quote to bring us into the interview? Okay. Um, I have the giggles now. If so. you could do it without <laughs> laughing. <laughs> so this quote is from Monica Bellucci. Wherever I go, I am Italian. The way I talk, the way I eat. The way femininity is important to me. The way I love Italian food. All right, and now it's time for the main segment of our show, and we are thrilled to introduce author and professor at the University of Connecticut, Gina Barreca. Gina, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Gina, we're excited to speak with you, and we, we always start the show asking our guests to tell us a little bit about their Italian American upbringing, where their family's from, and you know where they come from. 
Well, I think I'm going to sound like everybody else that you've had <laughs> on the show. I was, you know, listening to and looking at your uh, material on Facebook and your other media, and we clearly all come from the same tribe. Uh, it's it's not a surprise. I grew up in Brooklyn mm. on Ocean Avenue in Sheepset Bay, and uh, I was born in 1957. I'm 60 years old, and I now look exactly like all of my aunts. And um, <laughs> if I had any class, I'd say aunts, but I don't. And <laughs> even though I've taught at the University of Connecticut for 30 years, no one has ever come up to me in all those years and said, oh, Dr. Bereka, what part of Connecticut do you come from? <laughs> I still sound like I'm from Ocean Avenue. It is uh, nothing has changed. And well, I lived in England for five years. It did not change how I speak. It did not change anything about me. So my father's family, came over from Sicily, from outside Palermo, and particularly my grandfather, um, I just went back to Sicily for the first time last year, it came from Castle Buono. We found the paperwork. My brother, Hugo Bereca, who's an attorney in New York, um, is actually on the Ellis Island Foundation. So he's done, actually, the sleuthing and found, you know, the manifest, the ship that my grandparents came on. They met here on Thompson Street on the Lower East Side uh, after they had come over and they moved from Manhattan to Brooklyn. And then I actually, with my immediate family, my father and my mother, who's actually French Canadian, she was an immigrant from Quebec. And we moved to Long Island. So I actually went to high school at Oceanside Senior High School on Long Island. They made the you know, the huge migration in the 60s that people made from Brooklyn to, you know, the, the outer limits of the suburbs, which meant that we were 20 minutes away from my grandmother's house in Brooklyn, which was as far away as anybody had ever moved. It was like you needed a pass, <laughs> you know, to go to. I mean, we were out of the boroughs. We were, you know, 15 minutes away from the Queens border. But it was it was really like going to North Dakota. It was um, a very big move. It was quite daring in its day. And so like all the pictures that you have up, uh, they were the huge, big meals on Sunday. It was, you know, the immediate family of 117 would come to my grandmother's house. We had the upstairs kitchen and the downstairs kitchen. And of course, the upstairs kitchen was the kitchen that nobody ever used because fully appliance and beautiful and immaculate. We did not know anybody good enough to have a meal for them. <laughs> And those would have been the people I realized who would have been permitted to sit in the living room that no one could go into. And, you know, that was sort of roped off like a museum and where the furniture, the three pieces of brocade furniture that matched were covered in industrial grade vinyl. And uh, where if a kid, let's say, I won't make it personal, but let's say a kid sat down on one of those couches on a summer afternoon wearing shorts, you know, they got you up with a spatula. Right. <laughs> you know, That's right. Like you needed a skin graft. And, um, <laughs> you know, there were, uh, there was like the plastic runway carpet, you know, on top of the carpet so that if somebody dared walk in, they wouldn't leave footprints. And there was cellophane on the lampshades. And uh, there was no doubt that 
there was not going to be a fire or anything. You know, we learned like in third grade that you know, heat, you know, light made heat. And I asked my grandmother, you know, grandma, you shouldn't keep the cellophane because it's dangerous. And, you know, she grabbed me by the ear and said, you turn the lights on in the good living room. I was like, no, grandma, no. <laughs> good living so, room. Like, yeah, Never that was cellophane. That, Are you touching those lamps? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so I, I realized that we were perfectly safe. You know, no one was ever going to need to come okay. and worry about a fire. So, I mean, it was absolutely what I realized when I um, edited the Don't Tell Mama, the Penguin Book of Italian American Writing, that um, the stories collected that I collected it's over 500 pages of Italian American writers and that our stories were really so similar it was absolutely baffling to me just how many of us came from really the same sort of patterns uh and it was wonderful it was a little unnerving just how uh, again how much overlap there was and um and I think it's I think it's fascinating I think it's great we yeah. find that, I think, talking to so many Italian-Americans, right, Anthony, that, you know, there is a lot of commonality and a lot of patterns. You know, there might be different tweaks here and there, depending on, you know, if it was your parents that came over or your grandparents or and all that. But we, we really do share a lot of similarities. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, the food was all the same. I mean, you couldn't if they, you know, if you sat down and... We really did. We had a huge refractory table. You know, there were benches as well as chairs. You had to, you know, sort of find your space. And there was always a lot of food and, you know, all the different courses. I mean, the dinners would last four hours. And, you know, if people didn't know what to expect, they would stop eating at the pasta and not realize then that, that there was going to be fish and there was going to be meat and there was going to, you know, that. Uh, and if you didn't, have a second helping. You know, I remember my oh, grandmother saying, oh, you'll <laughs> never see it on this table again. No, you don't like it. You'll never see it again. No, I didn't realize you didn't like how I made the chicken. You'll never see chicken on this table again. So there was always a threat involved. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just laughing because like I remember like I'm eating like at my grandparents like lunch or something. I'm on like my third yeah. plate and my grandfather's yeah. like, what are you on a diet? Eat. Take yeah, more. Exactly. I'm like a diet. I ate three plates already. What, what do you want me to do? Finish the finish the food? I mean, it's not going to go bad. Save it. I mean, no, it's really right. What did you eat before you came? And actually, we always did eat before we went to any any other place. Like even before you went to somebody's house, you had to eat before you go. It was a big theme because you don't want to arrive mother the farm. You're not gonna right, go right. dying of hunger to somebody else because you never knew what you were gonna get someplace else. Right. So you always had a little something to eat before you went just to make sure that you wouldn't starve to death. And you know, and my aunts, uh, my mother died when I was very young. So it was the Italian aunts were the big sort of female influence in my life. And they all look like I refer to them, you know, in my talks as the Ottoman ants, because they were all like three foot two and they all weighed 750 pounds and they all wore floral print dresses at all times. I so love if, them. Yeah. <laughs> but if you had a group of them together, like after mass in the downstairs kitchen, it looked like they were Ottomans. <laughs> I mean, the only thing missing was the button on the top of the head. You know, it was like they were on casters, you know, they moved across the room so there were like little ottomans all over the room i mean they were 
They were great. They were and just you all lived close to each other, as you were saying. Yes, earlier. everybody yeah. um, was within spitting distance, which occasionally became literal. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, you know, there was great intimacy. There wasn't always great love. There was always somebody would, you know, bring his new wife to the family, some Swedish woman. And the, you could see the ants looking at her and go, that one, that one doesn't pick up a plate. You know, she didn't clean with everybody else, you know, because no Italian man, once he sits down for a meal, ever gets up again. That's right. Right. So that if, you know, one of these men were sitting down and he looks up and says, I don't have a fork. 16 women rise immediately going, oh, my God, your (laughs) Uncle Tony doesn't have a fork. Who set the table? He doesn't have a fork. Oh, my God. And, you know, if it didn't become a matter of hysteria, you know, if somebody said, Tony, you could reach behind you, you know, the cutlery is there. I mean, that would be like heresy, you know. So I remember when uh, my sister's now husband, but she was dating him and, of course, you know, he's he's not Italian. And um, he came over and my father was, you know, very old school. And I remember after dinner one time he picked up the plate, his plate and brought it over to the sink. And it was kind of like the like the record stopped in the room, you know, and we were all like looking at him. And then my father was watching him and he was like, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> and my sister's husband was like, I'm, you know, we're done. I'm dinner. I'm pretty. He's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, exactly. You right. do not Don't do give that them, in this house. Yeah. Right. You give them the <laughs> wrong impression. I mean, what yeah. would happen? But yeah. also there were things that the men did that the women never Absolutely. did. Absolutely. I mean, did you ever see a woman drive when there was an Italian man in the car? Right. Exactly. I mean, that never happened. You know, you've done a lot of work regarding, uh, you know, women and and gender. You do a lot of talks on this as well. And, you know, obviously this is the Italian-American podcast, so I'm particularly interested in your thoughts regarding Italian-American women. It's a good dovetail from what you just said, because I think one thing I've really taken from our culture that, that I think is very honorable is although women tended to be, quote, in the kitchen, the roles of male and, and female were traditionally very equal in the sense of, yes, the men did not clean, right? The men did right. not cook, you know, and things like that. But they did, as you said, other things. And you needed both the male and the female to make the house run and to keep the family together. Yes, I think that that's right. Although what was interesting, at least in my family, um, the men cooked the expensive cuts of meat. Mm, that's right. That's that's a good observation. Yeah, if it yeah. Was the wit, if like you had a, a roast, you had a big leg of lamb, you had something. The men would cook the meat. It was like if there was an investment involved in the piece of food, you know. But if it's if there were the women would make the spatina, it would take you know two hundred and fifty hours to pound the veal down to paper thin, and that the women would be doing. And I remember when you know the girls would be cooking in the kitchen, we had to whistle. My grandmother would make us whistle because you couldn't eat and whistle at the same time. uh, So, and actually it was something that I realized my father who, you know, got left with the the job, which he didn't expect to do of having to raise a teenage daughter. When I, you know, bring some boy over to the house and we'd be sitting in the living room or the backyard every 15 minutes or so he would whistle. 
because there's a lot of other things you can't do and whistle at the same time. <laughs> so, I was expected to return the whistle immediately. <laughs> My father whistled, otherwise he'd show up. Yeah, um, It was a balanced household, although the men, and again, I'm talking from my own family, you know, we knew that there were other women on the side. We knew that, you know, they would go out on a Friday night. We knew that there was uh, something else going on. And, you know, every once in a while, the women would uh, throw a vase or go to the priest and talk about you know, how they couldn't stand it anymore. I mean, it wasn't, they weren't necessarily healthy relationships. They were certainly long-term relationships. I had one uncle who actually left his wife and um, the wife was brought into the family and accepted and the uncle was banished from the house because you could do what you want, but you did not get a divorce. That's right, yeah. And um, so she was taken in. And I, I met him, even though he was a senior uncle in the family, I met him only a handful of times in my entire life. Hmm. But that's, you know, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's, it's dramatic and, yeah. you know, which is also not surprising yeah, for right. Italian-Americans. Right. But really anything that kind of breaks the code of La Familia is yeah. not accepted. Right. And this was, and the other thing that the women were not allowed to handle, and again, we're going back some generations, right. but was money. And so the women all had, I mean, I had aunts who used to skim money off their housekeeping, would take a couple of bucks here and there, they would buy stuff on sale, or, you know, they would put some money away. I mean, you know, they could have bought a Ferrari, but they, you know, they kept it in a jar and a sock and the lingerie drawer with, you know, their feminine hygiene products, you know, places the men wouldn't go and that they would have a couple of bucks laid away, but they did not have any money in their own name. It's not like they had a separate checking account or, you know, anything they could spend. Any money also came through the men. So that was a very big difference in terms of, you know, they did not own property. They did not have their names on anything. Hmm, that's mm-hmm. interesting. What I guess one question that I would have for Eugenia is, I mean, you've done so much work in this realm. You know, I know part of what you teach, I believe, is focused is the feminist theory, right, at the University yeah, of Connecticut. Yeah, I look at, right, I look at what women's, how women's lives exactly. work in our society. Yep. So I'm curious as to Kind of like Dolores was saying in the Italian American community, or which I guess goes back to Italian history, of course. Do you see major differences between these different cultures and meaning, like, you know, that came to the US that, you know, started to flourish? You know, I mean, it sounds like, you know, obviously when they came over, a lot of the stuff that you've talked about as far as the men, what they do in the household, but it also sounds like there was a balance. And obviously, I think as we move towards time, there's more of a balance between men and women. I mean, right. um, you know, that's that's I mean, that's uh, to me, it's obvious just because I've seen it in my own family. I can speak to right. that at least. Um but how do you how, how have you seen the progression of that and like the differences between other cultures? Is it noticeable or? I think that what's it's a great question. And I think one of the things that has been dramatic is the way that the daughters of Italian-American families have risen up through the ranks that I would say in the last 60 years. And maybe you know, it's just because I'm following my own trajectory here. But women my age were given more permission to 
sort of invent and script our own lives mm. uh, very differently from the women who came before us. And that we learned, and I'm sure that as Fred will have discussed because he's so good about it, is the sort of awakening, especially of the Italian-American working class Italians, which, you know, the upper class Italians, the aristocratic Italians are very different from the working class Italians to discover and embrace the importance of education. And so, you know, for the women, that became a fertile ground for us to be able to, you know, grab hold of and run with so that you do have a lot of Italian-American women in positions mm. of power, of authority, who have distinguished themselves in professional life in a way because there were fewer expectations for us. And so we got to make them up as we went along. There was a lot more improv in our lives in a way, I think, than for our male contemporaries who struggled with an identity as a real Italian man. There were a lot more expectations about how they were going to have to navigate a conception of masculinity and fit into the professional world than there were for women because there were no expectations at all for women in the profession world for Italian American women. So I think in some way we've had an easier time than our brothers because I really do think, I mean, that the sort of straitjacket of masculinity is as confining as the straitjacket of femininity. And so, you know, it's just tailored differently. And, you know, women don't have to shoot our cuffs the same way, you know, that men do. And so that we got to figure it out in different ways. And there's something that's really freeing about that. I am always delighted to see, again, any Italian-American who still remains a real Italian-American is not trying to disguise it, did not wasp themselves up, you know, is not trying to pretend to be somebody else who embraces the heritage while still being able to understand how the, you know, Americanos go through life and to be able to master that script as well. It's sort of like being bilingual in terms of the culture, not just the language. Mm. You know, you made me think of uh, Robert Orsi, and we had him on the show a little while ago. And he told his whole story about, you know, when he, he's at Harvard now, you know, mm-hmm. there's there's not many of us teaching at Harvard and, and right. even studying at Harvard, you know. And uh, he started talking about how even to this day, he's still surprised sometimes he's at these conferences or these meetings and everybody else is so kind of, you know, let's say waspy, stayed, calm, reserved. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I'm always the passionate color in the room. And right. afterwards, people will come up to him and, and say... It's exactly what I was thinking. You verbalized it. And he's like, you know, it's still kind of he still remains Italian American, even in that world. Yes, I absolutely think that's the case. I mean, my experience with that was being one of the first women at Dartmouth College after they allowed women to matriculate in the mid early 70s. The senior class had still matriculated as all male. And I say not only was I was one of the first classes of women, I talk about this in my book, Babes in Boyland, but I was the only person whose last name ended in a vowel. Right. And uh, and I know, but really, I mean, when I got there in 1975, what was interesting was that I think the only other Sicilian who had ever attended Dartmouth was Michael Corleone. 
Wow. <laughs> no, really. And you can imagine Mario Puzo, you know, writing The Godfather and thinking, okay, where do we put Mikey? You know, we yep. put him, we have to get him away from the family. Oh, you know, he's this GI hero. He goes to college on the GI Bill. We have to get him as far from everything he ever knew about his family. Ah, we'll send him to Hanover, New Hampshire, to Dartmouth College. And that's where I go as an undergraduate, like, you know, two years after the book comes out. And it was it was an amazing experience. I was the first girl in my family to go to college. I was actually, you know, the first woman in my family to graduate from high school in a timely fashion. <laughs> it was um, not exactly what was, again, expected of us. And when I went to tell, and this is in Babes of Borland, when I went to tell my Aunt Josephine, who was the one who was always stirring the pot of gravy, you know, yeah, it had yeah. been right. There's always somebody who's got to be stirring the gravy and there always has to be hot food. Because, yeah. right, because somebody had to, somebody could get paroled. <laughs> and, um, you know, when I say that, some people think I'm kidding. So I go to tell her, I said, yeah, hey, Josephine, I'm, I'm going to go to college. And she pauses in the stirring and she looks at me and she says, where are you going to go to college? And, you know, she's already suspicious. And I said, I'm going to go to yeah. school and I'm going to go to school in Hanover, New Hampshire, to this place called Dartmouth. They just let in girls. And she, I think she's worried about the money. So I said, it's OK. I got a scholarship. I got loans. I got work study. And she looks at me. She said, you're going to go to college in New Hampshire. And I said, I can take the bus, you know, from Port Authority. She says, you're going to go to school in New Hampshire. She said, you're pregnant, right? <laughs> Because why else would a seven-year-old girl leave the state? And I said, no, I'm a good student. I did well on my test. And she looked at me. She kept stirring. And she said, you know, it happened to your cousin Elaine. You can always come home. And I'm thinking, I don't think anybody who else gets into an Ivy League school had their relatives look and go, you're pregnant, right? That's what you do. I mean, so I go to college and I'm looking around at all of these people who look like they're from the planet Pepsodent. You know, these beautiful tall blondes and I'm thinking I got nine months before anybody expects me home (laughs) (laughs) I'm just gonna have a good time and um and it was really fascinating to be there and actually now one of the things that makes me very proud is that the um Rauner Special Collections Library at Dartmouth has requested my papers so all my diaries and letters home and uh, so I'm going to be in their special collections library for posterity so at least the, uh, you know, all of that stuff where I'm trying to, you know, argue with my relatives and explain what I'm doing in this place will um, be in some vault somewhere if anybody wants to look them up. So it'll be interesting. That is oh, interesting. And it's, it's, congratulations. Yeah, Thank that's you. awesome. And I'm, I'm listening to and I'm laughing when you say what your aunt said, of course. But I think if you think about it, it's a really great snapshot of, you know, where we've come, like from then uh-huh. to now, as far as like you were saying before, with like Italian American women getting more educated. And it's now more, I don't want to say expected, but as opposed yeah. to w- when you told your aunt that. But it's also just like something that I think Dolores that we've seen on the podcast. I mean, we had Marie. Maria Lorino, author of The Italian Americans on, and she was talking about how when the immigrants came from Italy, they didn't even have the female children go to school. Because there was no no need to go to school. I mean, and, and now we're talking about like in today's world, how you know, we've had people on that have had Italian American women on the show that have had amazing like careers in education, in the corporate world, and, right. you know, authors, and everything. So it's it's great to kind of see the whole thing. I mean, I feel like just in our thirty 
nine episodes of the show, we've seen all of this come to light, which has been pretty cool. One question that I have for you, Gina, is you went to Cambridge, you spent, mm-hmm. you said five years in England, and I have right. to ask, as an, you know, an Italian from Brooklyn, what was that whole experience like? What was interesting was being in England, in fact, was less dislocating for me than being at Dartmouth. Because to be in England, I was simply an American, where at Dartmouth, I was a lower class Italian kid. And again, I thank God, I'm very lucky. I had great professors. I did well. I found other people who were like me, not other Italians, but, you know, other working class kids or kids who were defined by their ethnicities, you know, the Jewish kids, the three Puerto Ricans, the two black girls. And, you know, we all lived in one part of campus. It was like they didn't want us to, you know, contaminate the gene pool. And I always said to two of my roommates that I'm still very, very close to, and I said they didn't put us because some of the dorms were so old, they had fireplaces in the rooms. And I said, they will never give us a room with a fireplace because they'll think we'll cook (laughs) i mean that they could imagine us it's like no no we'll make a nice veal stew you know get come on we'll do this and so we were in the like the cinder block you know the new parts of the campus because we were like not gonna let us go there and you know like have a sunday dinner and um so that was being in england was in fact uh for me it could not define my class or my origins in the same way that being in this enclave of what was really the American aristocracy and understanding that there really is an American aristocracy, that there really is. I mean, that was one of the parts of The Sopranos that I really liked was um, they're sending Meadow to Columbia and to understand the differences between the kids who are expected to right. go to enter that world and who do not need, you know, an initiation into that kind of life versus the kids who really come as outsiders. And so, you know, and not to sort of um, blur or erase or ignore those class distinctions. I mean, when I got up to Hanover and I was talking about I. I would ask, you know, at the beginning, do you want to come back to the room for coffee? And I remember one very cute boy who I wanted to have come back to the room for coffee. He said, oh, say that again. And I was like, what did I say wrong? Was I supposed to say come back for a beer? Was I supposed to say (laughs) have a cup of tea? And he said, no, how you say coffee. It's so cute. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my, you know, like I have an accent. Now, obviously, where I came from, I didn't have an accent. Right. And I realized, again, it's like saying aunt. You know, I still... I don't do that. I realize when I go back to Brooklyn or I go back to Long Island that I do sound even more like my old self than I do now, but it's certainly not the affectation. I mean, I can speak terribly well. (laughs) It's not that that I can't, you know, it's not that it's impossible for me to sound (laughs) if I come from somewhere else or do a mid-Atlantic accent. I believe I can actually, you know, pass. But why on earth would I want to? So it's the idea of bringing, as you said, passion and vibrancy and what, at least what Italian Americans do, and I think that that's one of the reasons that that we, you know, we are uh, a, a world of storytellers 
that there are so many great Italian-American writers. Why even people in That's What's In, Don't Tell Mama, the discussion I had with my editor at Penguin when that book first came out, as I've said, because I had done the Penguin book of um, women's humor. And I was talking to the editor that I worked with for that book. And I said, you know, you have the Penguin book of Irish writing, Irish American writing, you have the Penguin book of Chinese American writing, you have the Penguin book of Jewish American writing. I said, where's the Penguin book of Italian American writing? And she said, well, Italians really don't write that much. Mm. And I said, what are you kidding? And I said, this is, you know, yes, we do. People don't think of Wally Lamb, for example, as an Italian writer. And he is. He's he's another, you know, very Italian Sicilian author um, that you don't think of Ed McBain, you know, great bestseller as an Italian writer. He is. There's a lot of people who you don't immediately think of that. You think of Gay Talese, you know, who I think of Mr. Talese. But, you know, Gay Talese is a real Italian-American. He writes about that. But there are a lot of other people who also come from that background who you don't immediately associate with being an Italian-American author. But every Italian-American knows how to tell a good story. Because if you don't know how to tell a good story, people will either walk away or hurt you. To your point, I think if you if most Italian-Americans just tell their own story, right, that's it. That's it. For the Italian-American book, for Don't Tell Mama, what was interesting, it was something that when Publishers Weekly reviewed the book, they, obviously Publishers Weekly reads a lot of books, but the person who reviewed it said, you know what, in all my years of reviewing, I have never seen a book where the editor wrote, I wrote a long introduction, and then my brother wrote a rebuttal to my introduction, okay? Because that's what an Italian family is like. So I wrote this introduction, and then my brother writes and says, don't believe anything she says. Um, <laughs> she never knew anything. We didn't tell her half of what was going on because we knew she had a big mouth and that she would go on and tell everybody. So half of what she says, she didn't do anything that was going on. We never told her anything. And so there's a rebuttal from my brother. And I thought that's actually an essential part of Italian-American storytelling is also somebody goes, nah, it didn't happen that way. You want to know what really happened? It happened like this. And that's, you know, that's why it's such a rich narrative sort of, you know, combination of stories. There's not one right story. It doesn't go in a clear trajectory from the beginning to the middle to the end, because there's a lot of voices. And those voices, as they are at the dinner table, are fighting for space and they're adding details and they're changing the story as it goes along. Hmm. Well put. You know, Gina, we have this conversation a lot on the show about Italian-American writers and for that matter, Italian-American readers. And uh, not surprisingly, we do get we do get a range of opinions <laughs> from people, you know, ranging from gay to belief. Uh, we had him on the show. We did a two part episode with him, his belief that Italian-Americans are, are not people of the book, which right. is to say. We tell stories, meaning, you know, audibly and not we don't write them and down to many other guests saying quite the opposite, which is the reason people have this idea that Italian-Americans don't write and for that matter, don't read is because publishers have stopped publishing 
stories about Italian Americans. Right. And I think that, you know, we need to sort of make sure that we reclaim that and that we also focus. I mean, and, and we do, I'm sorry, but we do need to buy books. Yeah. We need to, you know, make a decision to actually get out there and, you know, support your podcast and support the Italian American writers that we know. And it's not like, you know, there's almost a little bit like, nah, he's going to tell me I know it already. It's like, no, oh, you it's don't. That's so true. Right? That it's, is perfect. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Yep. Uh-huh. So we need to, it's actually, we need not to think that we know the whole story, because there are going to be things too that are revealed to us by these other authors that are, you know, we have to go back and read Sandra Gilbert's poetry. You know, she's amazing. She's an astonishing author and one of the best uh, Italian American poets that's out there. I hope you'll have her on at some point. And, you know, and it's the people who are making us re-examine and have new perspectives on not only what we've inherited, but how we are treating that legacy. You know, we're heirs to all of this, but we are also, we're the custodians of it. And we need to, we need to shake, continue to shape these stories as we pass them along. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, what really, you know, popped out to me and what you talked about here as far as, you know, going to England and almost it being more comfortable than going to New Hampshire was that it was like 1975, you said, when you went to New Hampshire. And like yep. at the end of the day, like that's not that long ago, like, you yeah. know, which is kind of like an interesting thing because in a lot of ways it feels like things are really different. But I mean, it, I guess it happened kind of quickly. But, you know, this is not like we're not talking like 100 years ago here, you know, right. that, that it was like that. So it's good to see that we've progressed quite a bit in a relatively short period of time. And now we're like, you know, it seems like we're doing much better. I mean, yeah, like maybe some people say we're not readers or writers, but I think to the contrary, we've produced quite a bit out of our community for sure. Right. And that, again, that we need to come together, not only food, but over the stories and over the ideas that, you know, the intellectual history, the cultural history, the emotional history, that all of that's there. And we do a good job with that. I have I'm I'm thinking as we're talking about this, Gina, you know, I'm, I'm picturing your aunt who when you, you told her you were going to Dartmouth, you know, uh, asked you if you were pregnant. What could you have done to get a book about the Italian-American experience in her hands and have her actually read it? That's a really good question. Certainly my relatives, I gave them the books and I would come back. They would put them on the coffee table, but there would be layers of dust. Yeah on them. And but then again, my you know, my older brother is the one who gave me. You know, he told me right from the beginning, you have to read the words. You have to do that. My father, even though he left school in the eighth grade, was a great reader. We have to help the Italian-American community understand that this education business, um, and as Gaddafi says, the more you carry in your head, the less you have to carry on your back. Mm. Um, And that we're not too good for this and that we are welcome in it and that the more of us who are in it welcoming each other, the more comfortable it'll be. It's well said. I'm actually glad you just mentioned Fred because one thing that I really liked about Fred Gardafe is he also understands, you know, we've had a lot of PhDs on the show and including, including you, including Fred. 
but he understands that that's not so impressive to Italian Americans. Right. He said, we really aren't interested in calling ourselves intellectuals, most of us. Right. And and I think that that's important to understand because I feel like you got to I even got did you hear that. I even just went yeah. into like neighborhood talk. It was great. You got to. OK, that you, you know, that you have to make it accessible for who we are. Yeah, absolutely. So and that again, a working class thing in a way, let's put it that way. Well, it's always what it is. It's it's like from this, you're going to make a living. Right. You know, right. That's uh, it's like and it's like, yeah, actually. Yeah, <laughs> <you know? good. laughs> it's also, yeah. So far, so good, honey. You know, this is really OK. <laughs> and it's really it's it's again, it's part of making that seem less intimidating. And it's the idea that I don't think I'm better than you, but I don't think I have to apologize to you for being smart. Mm. Because I think you are smart, too. And this is not making me less feminine or less funny or, you know, less of a good cook. Um, I did a column, right, because my column syndicated now, so it goes around the country. It's for the Tribune every week in the Hartford Current. And I did one about how last summer I have some neighbors. Uh, we're on a couple of acres here near the school. Or I'm in the woods and that some neighbors got chickens. And there was one day when I was literally, I was making red sauce. I got, you know, the screen doors open. I'm, I'm in an apron. I got, you know, the music on in the background. And, you know, I think it's Paul Anka or something. And the chickens start to come up to my porch. In the of back. course. And I am screaming obscenities at the chickens and saying, get the out of here, lousy chickens, flapping my apron. And I thought, I am back to 150 years ago. It's like (laughs) my DNA, you know, and that if somebody saw me, took a picture, it's like, here's the, you know, Dr. Regina Barreca, professor of feminist theory, member of the chickens. You know, and I'm screaming at the chickens to get out of my yard. And I thought, you know, things change, but nothing changes. Right. So, you know, that. and I thought if some people saw this, this would make them respect me more, that I got the chickens off the deck right. than yeah. for how many books I wrote. So, you know, yeah, you have to do everything. So that's fine. And I make a nice chicken. I didn't kill them and cook them. That's what people wrote me. Said, did you get them? Did you make a nice dish? And I was like, no. They were the neighbor's chickens. I did not slaughter the neighbor's chickens. Come I mean, a further than that. So I've I've always been very, you know, kind of slippery with that title of calling myself. I've always been a big reader and, I, and I've always been a writer. But it's always been something that I was like kind of uncomfortable wearing. You know, I don't feel comfortable with certain words or like keeping myself in the world of like academia, things like that. And I think it comes from where I come from. Yeah, I think it does too. I mean, this is really it. And it's like what my uncle, I had an uncle who lived out of Florida and he, my husband is a retired professor and he who grew up in Jersey City and his father is not Italian, but his father was a longshoreman, comes from exactly the same background. Neither of his parents graduated from high school, you know, just like mine. We're the most unlikely pair of academics you would find. And, um, we would go down to Florida and my uncle would introduce us and he'd say, this is my niece, Gina, and her husband, Dr. Meyer. <laughs> and I'd be like, you know, I got the same exact rank and degree, but he's a man and he's got a beard and, you know, he looks like a professor. And there's right. my niece, Gina. And I mean, I'm fine because this is like, you know. 
you don't want your, your niece to outrank you, right? I mean, right. This is so, right. you know, yeah. but that's fine. I mean, I'm good. I don't correct anybody. It's not like, you know, I don't tell them. I learned after, you know, a certain age, probably around 40. It's like, it's too close to menopause. I'm not going to st- I'm not going to apologize for the accomplishments that I've had. But because, I love that. I love that yeah. you're maintaining what I'm saying, what I said before about yeah. me being uncomfortable yeah. wearing any kind of label like that, yeah. I don't think it's a bad thing. Why do I have to be yeah. the waspy gentry that you went to Dartmouth with? Yeah. Why can't I be smart as a whip, well-read, sharp, and, you know, a girl from upstate New York who grew up in yeah. an Italian-American family with a cross, exactly. a gold cross around my neck? Why not? Exactly. No, and you can be, but that's what we have to model this. You know, Absolutely. we have to so, be the word. ones who are championing this and say, this is not an either or, you know, we're all in. And that's what Italian-Americans have always been. It's, it's a world of contradictions. Yeah, I, I think that the one thing just building on everything that we've just said here is the where I think that there's a lot of opportunity for Italian Americans is that we have the ability. I mean, let's be honest. A lot of scholarly people mm-hmm. are boring. Yeah. And, and as Italian American, <laughs> no, no, I'm, 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 I'm serious. As, Ita- <laughs> as, as Italian Americans like Gina and like Fred, who we just had on the podcast, you're you're not boring. So if you right. ta- if you can take an Italian American who is scholarly but is also engaging and tells stories, and you put the two together, we have like this new brand of you know scholarly people that can actually be engaging and be really be like a like you still want them at your kitchen table. Yeah, yeah exactly. and like, but I mean, yeah. for our community, they're like a right. great people that are out there as educated people, but they're still engaged and they're able to go and talk to people and use yeah. whatever language they need to use to get their thoughts across, which I think is pretty powerful. That's right. Well, I think again, like I said, it's being able to talk to any audience and feel at home and make everybody realize how much they bring to the table. And, you know, to have a really good conversation. That's all that culture has ever been, is sitting at the grown-up table and having a conversation. Yep, absolutely. And and if... We've always been good at that. We've always been good at that, and we continue to be good at it. And if you ask me if I'm in an audience watching a speaker, and I either have to choose between, you know, a PhD who's super qualified on the topic or someone who's going to tell me a great story, I'm usually going to take the person that can tell me a great story. But, you know, what I'm thinking here is that we're kind of putting the two together. Absolutely. You have to. And I think that everybody who's a good speaker understands that. And that's why, you know, I'm very fortunate. One of the fun times I had was speaking at the uh, NIAF conference, the National, what is it? The National Italian American Foundation. Foundation. And down in Washington. And it was, it was such a mix of people. It was great. It was actually fabulous. I talked to the Women's Caucus or something, and it was it was just a, a fabulous blend of people. It was a hoot. So, right. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would hate to think we lose that aspect of who we are. You know, I feel like it's what we offer as a culture. It's what we bring to the table, you know? I mean, I'd hate to think of somebody like Robert Orsi all of a sudden becoming stuffy and yeah. boring and quiet and, you know, like – Nobody needs any more of that. No, absolutely not. (laughs) Well, I'm just thinking, Dolores, maybe like a big part of like what you were saying, maybe the reason Italian-Americans are uncomfortable with that title is because they're thinking that that stereotype comes along with it. Whereas we need to just say whatever. We're going to make our own type. Right. 
like you know, Gina said, absolutely. model it. You know, yep. exactly. So, yep, absolutely. All right, folks. Well, listen, well, this as, is a lot of fun. What, what are, as we wrap up here, Gina, what are some projects that you're working on or that, you know, what's coming up for you? Well, the uh, book that just came out is called If You Lean In, Will Men Just Look Down Your Blouse? And <laughs> there's a lot of stuff about family in it. There's uh, uh, stuff that I know your readers would recognize. It was excerpted in Reader's Digest. It was an L uh, reader's pick. And um, so that I'm still nurturing that one and getting that one out in the world. And the columns come out every week. And if people come onto Facebook and Instagram and they can find me, I'm giving talks everywhere and uh, be great to see people in the audience. That's awesome. And everything, yeah. everything is on Gina's website, um, which is laid out great, easy to navigate. We'll link to her website and all of her social media sites in the show notes for this episode. And Gina, thank you so much for spending some time here with us and our listeners. We really appreciate oh, it's it. Absolutely. My pleasure. You two, you're great. And what you're doing is terrific. And I look forward to your having me back. All right, now it's time for the Italian-American story segment of the episode. This is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations, and we try to play a recording or a story from one of our listeners or our own relatives or even read something that a listener submitted. And in today's segment, I am going to chat with one of our listeners, Susan Van Allen, who's also an author. She wrote the book, A Hundred Places in Italy, Every Woman Should Go. In this excerpt, Susan talks about, as I said earlier, how her love for Italy was really born at a dining room table in Newark, New Jersey, Sunday dinners with their grandparents, you know, asking questions like a lot of us get interested in our background and she's taken it of course and made a career out of it now here we go all right so i'm here with susan van allen for our story segment today susan is the author of 100 places in italy every woman should go as well as letters from italy confessions adventures and advice susan welcome to the italian american podcast Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Anthony. Thank you. So, Susan, obviously, not only are you an Italian-American, but you're a passionate one. You've written books on the subject. You visit Italy all the time. And, you know, I'd be really interested in, uh, you know, just hearing about what made you so interested in your heritage and passionate about, you know, where you came from. Surely. I love talking about this. As I say in the introduction to my book, A Hundred Places in Italy Every Woman Should Go, my love for Italy was born at a dining room table in Newark, New Jersey. (laughs) Of course it was. (laughs) Of course. It was those Sunday dinners at my Nana and Papa's house. My Papa, Giuseppe Chirico, they always called him Chirico. We know the correct pronunciation is Chirico. He was from Valio, outside Potenza. And my grandmother, Wilhelmina Spada, was from, her family came over in the early, like around 1903, uh, from Vincituro, which is a little town outside Campobasso in Molise. And I've been fortunate to visit. The family still lives there. 
And but back to that dining room table, I know that my grandfather immigrated. He was the first because he had sisters. So he was the first. He went from Valio in Basilicata near Potenza, then to Naples and worked in a pasticceria and then to Little Italy, New York, and then to Newark, where he worked for the Prudential Insurance Company for all the rest of his life. And um, I know he bought this house on Mount Prospect Avenue in Newark, New Jersey at auction. And, and the story was he surprised my grandmother. She always loved the house. It's just such a beautiful immigrant success story. And um, so this was where the family dinners were in this beautiful dining room. The walls were uh, painted a stencil. One of the uncles, Carrado, was a beautiful house painter. And so it was all stenciled in this rose pattern. And I remember the... Um, the table would have one of those beautiful jars of marinated cherries and there was great china and candlesticks and lace tablecloths from Venice and opera playing in the background and my Nana was a really wonderful, wonderful cook when I realize it now. I mean, I just thought it was Italian food, but it was <laughs> really Southern Italian food. We had the tarale, which were just fantastic. Really authentic, yeah. Yes, and uh, the pasta, the steaming bowls of pasta, and always beautiful uh, platters of antipasto, roasted peppers and olives, and then there'd be a big, big lamb, and then my grandpa father, Papa, because he worked in the pasticceria, would make this gorgeous rum cake slathered with whipped cream with a cherry on top. And it was just so delicious. And then out would come the the cordials and the strega and the sambuca. And of course, these dinners would go on for hours. And I had an older brother and two sisters who would rather be watching television. I just (laughs) I just loved being there and listening to all the all the talk it was just so lovely mainly about family and stories about i had a uncle who coached opera in new york um it was my grand grandmother's brother and um so susan when did you actually get to go back to You've been back to these towns, right? Or the town? Right, right. I actually, because my grandfather would go back every summer. Oh, okay. And, and, and bring back, and he always promised that he would take me. That never happened. He passed away when I was in high school. But I took a gap year before that became fashionable <laughs> and sold Avon products, worked at Dunkin' Donuts, babysat, did everything to save my pennies to get on a plane to go to Italy 40 some years ago and so that's when I first got to go there and I went to Rome and I met my father and my grandfather's cousins there and we sat at their dining room table and it felt so much like home it's fantastic yeah that's amazing it's an amazing feeling I mean you kind of like no one even has to tell you you just kind of know right yeah, absolutely. The connection is so deep and so strong. I I'm so grateful to have it. Right. So at what point did you kind of say, you know, this is going to be more than um, 
just my heritage and my family. I want to start to write and I want to start to do other things. You know, how, what, what got you to that point? Oh, that's interesting. It, you know, the decisions always find me instead of me really going after it. I started out, I went to school to be an actress that developed into me writing for theater. I did a play called Jersey Girls that was all characters from my Italian-American family. That got attention in L.A. I got a job writing for the sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. If you ever saw the the meatball episode, that was the first episode I wrote. And, um, And then as TV writing slipped away. I I always traveled to Italy whenever I had extra cash and time. I that's that's where I went. And so I just wrote a little essay about really wanting to go to Italy when I was in between writing jobs. And it got on uh, an NPR show called Savvy Traveler. And that feeling came over me when I had the privilege to do it. Just like, wow, wouldn't it be great if I could really focus on this and really do it? So that's really how it started uh, about 15 years ago. And then I went to magazines and newspapers and then finally to the book. Wow, that's just great. And I think that, I think what you're doing is great. I think it's, you know, definitely inspiring Italian Americans that, you know, you should definitely be proud of your heritage. You should definitely embrace it. Um, you know, and do what you can to enjoy it, whether it's just going there is great in itself. Like, um, Susan said, and I got the chance to do that this past summer. It's, you feel a strong connection when you're there. Um, and if there's things you can do beyond that, obviously we're doing through the podcast, Susan's doing through her books and tours and other things she does. Um, it's, it's, you're, it's going to be rewarding for you. That's for sure. Because you're going to, you're going to feel it, you know, beyond it's, it, it goes, I think it transcends like work and life. It just becomes you essentially. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's the personal connections and then there are the Italians up and down the boot that are so warm and welcoming, you know, whether you have family there or not, whether you're Italian American or not, you are embraced and it's just, I'm so proud of my people and their open hearts and grateful. Absolutely. So Susan, where can our listeners kind of find you, connect with you and keep up with you? My website, SusanVanAllen.com. And I also lead women-only tours in the spring and and fall. And I'd love for some of you Italian-Americans out there to join me. There's so much fun. Yeah, check out SusanVanAllen.com. And when you get to Susan's website, you can see all of her social media is right there uh, across the top. So you can connect with her as well. Susan, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with our listeners. You know, I hope that you continue to do what you love to do. And and we're definitely going to, you know, kind of follow you in your travels. Oh, thank you so much, Anthony. And congratulations to you all on this great podcast. I love it. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and our talks with Gina and Susan. Really engaging. Dolores and I had a blast on this one. It was a lot of fun. And I'm going to kick it over to Dolores now to take us out. 
All right, Anthony, you can find us, Amici, on social media, where we also have a lot of fun. You can find us on Instagram. We're at Italian American. You can find us on Twitter at Ital American. And you can find us on Facebook at Italian American Podcast. Fra un poco.